Welcome to Defiance. Today I'm talking to Alex Gladstein, who is Chief Strategy Officer at the Human Rights Foundation, discussing why we defy. But before we get into the interview, I need to welcome and thank my sponsor Kraken and their CEO Jesse Powell, who are helping make this happen. Kraken also sponsor What Bitcoin Did, my other show which is dedicated to Bitcoin itself, an act of financial defiance. Bitcoin was introduced to the world in 2009 by its pseudonymous inventor Satoshi Nakamoto as a response to the 2008 financial crisis. Bitcoin is a decentralized peer-to-peer digital currency without any central authority. By not having a controlling party required to validate transactions, Bitcoin is both trustless and permissionless. And as Edward Snowden said, Bitcoin is freedom. And Kraken is the best place to buy Bitcoin. Consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange, Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. You can find out more at kraken.com, which is K-R-A-K-E-N.com. The reason why we fight is to draw attention to issues and to fix it. Resilient, resolute, defiant in the face of impossible odds. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction and all you can talk about is money. Hundreds of protesters turned out singing glory to Hong Kong, an anthem of defiance. Alex, hi. Hey, Peter. So December the 14th, 2018, you and I recorded a show about Bitcoin. We did. Why it matters for freedom. Yes. And ever since then, we've stayed in regular touch. I've learned a lot more about the work you do at the HRF. I've become a lot more interested in the topics around censorship, human rights and freedom. And here we are, what is it, seven, eight months later, Mm -hmm. recording the first show for Defiance. Couldn't be more thrilled. Yeah, couldn't have done it without you, so thank you so much. I feel like my journey has come from Bitcoin more into your world, whereas you've come from the world of human rights and Bitcoin has become a tool that you've learned a lot more about Mm -hmm. and we're kind of meeting in the middle here. Mm -hmm. So I feel like with the Defiance podcast, this is a chance for me to learn a lot more about things that have been... It's not that I haven't been aware of them. You know, I obviously watch the news, but there are topics that I don't think I've realized how important they are. And so between you and I and pulling this show together, hopefully we're going to explore some of these subjects and help people understand a bit more about what's going on in the world. Yeah, I mean, my hope would be that in the same way that Bitcoin sometimes inspires this addictive itch in you. You know, you learn a little bit about it and all of a sudden you have 10 more questions, right? You want to keep digging in. There are a lot of other topics like that where you don't know too much about something at first, kind of have this surface level understanding of how it works. And then you start to have more questions and you dig in and you dig in and you dig in. And there are so many topics like that, whether it comes from how the democratic revolutions work to free speech around the world to how different governments have evolved over time to how different technologies have impacted society. There's a lot to dig into. I think going out to Oslo was a real game changer for me as well. It wasn't only learning about new things, but actually I met a lot of fascinating people who can articulate experiences in a very, very open and very interesting way. And that for me, (laughs) I remember... I kind of had the itch before I went, but I remember flying back afterwards and I kind of knew I had to do something more. I had to take this Bitcoin thing further. I had to explore these subjects. And so firstly, thank you for inviting me out to that as that was a great experience. 
Yeah, I mean, look, what the Human Rights Foundation does with the Oslo Freedom Forum is gives the audience member, or when you visited us, it kind of gives you this glimpse of the staggering diversity of the world. And it's something you don't see often in any particular gathering or in media outlet or conference. It's a very unique thing. And we basically bring people from, you know, more than 50 different countries and regions and places all together in one in one particular location. And it just gives you this sense that the world is so much more varied and different and nuanced than what you previously believed. And a lot of that is because you are living in a bubble, right? So wherever you are, you're living in a bubble. It doesn't matter whether you're in Beijing or in New York or in Sydney or in Tokyo or in London, you're living in a bubble where things beyond your bubble matter less to you, right? And the difference in terms of whether things are in your bubble or outside your bubble is usually the media and how the media reports things. So what the Oslo Freedom Forum is is a tool for us to be a bubble-breaking machine. So you come there and you just sort of like systematically get all of your assumptions broken about how things work, especially as it relates to politics and government. And you learn about countries that are bigger than probably your own country, right? Like many times bigger that have crazy situations happening where people are struggling for their freedoms, where people are sacrificing so much, even just for like a fraction of the freedom that a lot of your listeners probably have. And you learn about these cases and you learn about these individuals and it really gives you some depth and context for your your own life. I think that's almost certainly correct, especially when you talk about living in a bubble. I try and think about where my life was maybe three, four years ago. I was working in advertising in London. My job was to help my clients sell more of whatever stuff they had to sell. I was aware of whatever was on the news, just you know, certain global things that were going on, but I wasn't aware to the level of detail since I've got involved in Bitcoin, since I've met you, since I've been to the, the Oslo Freedom Forum, where I've learned, I think the word you used there perfectly was staggering, the staggering difference of lives that people are living living and one of the things that stood out to me was the, the, I think it was almost like the first statistic that went up during one of the first presentations at the forum where I think it was something like and you'll know the exact number over four billion people live under authoritarian rule and that for me was staggering because that's over 50 percent of the world's population are living under authoritarian rule right and we can make jokes about the president of the United States or, you know, whatever democratically elected leader happens to be in power in places like France or, or Japan or the United Kingdom. But what we're talking about here are actual authoritarian states where there is no separation of powers at all between the executive legislature and the judicial branches, right? So you have, you know, like essentially whether you want to call it a Senate or a People's Assembly or a legislature of some kind, and this is separate from the power invested in the executive branch, which is separate from the power invested in the judicial branch. And these things balance each other out, right? And this is kind of where freedoms and rights come from in in the democratic society is separation of powers. And in these authoritarian states, it's like one man or one small group of men controlling everything. And the difference between that closed society and a more or less a free society that I imagine most of your listeners, you know, come from is, is, is really striking. And it's not something you can really properly understand until you start spending a lot of time with people who live in closed societies, who have experiences that, that you would might only, only dream of. So what are the main things that people won't understand about 
the differences in kind of freedom that people have in these countries? Well, there's a good test called the Town Square Test, uh, invented by a Soviet dissident named Natan Sharansky. And the idea behind the town square test is, can you go to the middle of your town or your village or your city and basically yell at the top of your lungs and criticize the leader of your country, right? And this is a pretty good litmus test for whether or not you live in, in, a, in a free country, right? So in my country, in the United States, which certainly is not perfect, we at least have those civil and political freedoms. We're a free country. So I can go and I can like criticize Trump as much as I want. I can say whatever I want about him in terms of how much I don't like him, et cetera. And not only that, but people on CNN and many different media outlets literally make a living off making fun of him. Like if you look on 90% of the major TV stations in the United States, you will find people criticizing and questioning and even television shows like late night comedy, et cetera, making fun of our president. So this is like a, literally an occupation you can be paid a lot of money for in the United States is to make fun of the president. In a place like Syria or in a place like North Korea or China or Cuba or Zimbabwe or so many other countries around the world, again, there's like 90 of these places, you would be terrified to go to the middle of a public area and criticize your leader. Absolutely terrified. And the difference is not just staggering you know, in terms of the fear factor, you know, we call these societies fear societies, whereas the other ones are free societies. But also the implications it has for pretty much anything you want to do as a human. You know, I can make a case that whether you care about peace or gender equality or maternal health or literacy rates or public infrastructure, welfare, pretty much anything that, that you think would be better for humans is better in a free society than in a closed one. Humans just do better in open societies and there's a lot of evidence to support that. So, you know, when we explore these concepts at the events that we do at HRF, I think what we're trying to show people is that it's worth fighting for freedoms and privacy and rights. And sometimes we just kind of fall asleep and we take things for granted. And many philosophers over the centuries have pointed this out, Tocqueville being a famous one, basically saying that, you know, if you get too lazy with your civic liberties, your freedoms will fall away from you, right? And I think that's actually true. The price of freedom is eternal vigilance, right? So with the Oslo Freedom Forum, not only do you get to like become more educated and, and empathetic about causes around the world, but I find that you go back home afterwards and you want to fight harder for your own freedoms and you get more pissed off about what's going on in your own country. Like one of the things I learned from Bitcoin, for example, was about the bank secret, the Bank Secrecy Act in the United States, right? And I learned that basically we have no financial freedom in the United States, but that's not something I learned about until I started to dig in. So you got to dig in and you have to be an engaged citizen. So we can actually separate what are free and closed states, but also encroachments on freedoms in, say, our own countries, you know, the UK and US, where we believe we have freedom, but our freedoms are being encroached upon. Sure. But I just want to go back a touch. When you talk about the town square test, mm -hmm. I can't help but think of a great example here is what happened with Pussy Riot in Russia. Mm -hmm. I have been under the belief for many years, not until recently, but that Russia was at least a democratic society. Uh -huh. But it's a, it isn't tr a truly... It's no, a veil. It's of, a dictatorship. It's a dictatorship. But I had the belief growing up that under the Gorbachev era, uh -huh. it was becoming a free country. Mm -hmm. It was becoming democratic. What's happened here? What am I missing? In the Russian case, there is 
no such thing as simplicity when it comes to is it a free country or is it not. We have standouts. We have Norway. We have Northern European countries, which are quite obviously from any measure free countries. We have North Korea, which anyone in their right mind would basically describe as a dictatorship, right? And as we get closer to the middle, it becomes more confusing. But Russia should be a pretty clear case. I mean, after the fall of the Soviet Union, you had a decade of instability and uncertainty. And you had basically the United States and other powers ranging from Japan to Europe trying to basically invest in stability. I mean, that's what they wanted to see in Russia. They didn't necessarily want to see a free and democratic Russia. They wanted to see a stable one for for monetary, mercenary reasons, right? And, And over time, you know, what happened was there was enormous discontent with regard to Yeltsin's reign. I mean, he was seen as very ineffective. He had a super low approval ratings, even though the way he was elected may have been to many extents free and fair. He was a tremendously disappointing leader. And there was actually a moment when Boris Nemtsov, who was then a very, very popular leader of a a particular region in Russia, was polling better than, than Yeltsin, sort of towards the end of the 90s. And Yeltsin realized this and he wanted Nemtsov to come rule with him in Moscow. And initially Nemtsov said no. And had Nemtsov stayed in, in his own region, he may have become the president of Russia in a free and fair election. But Yeltsin actually sent his daughter to Nemtsov and Nemtsov was very vulnerable to like kind of personal emotional meetings and requests and things like that. So he took the meeting with Yeltsin's daughter and he agreed, he couldn't say no. So he went to Moscow and then he was just destroyed by the media, by different scandals, whether they were true or not, by even just little things. And he was eventually sort of dragged down in terms of his popularity. And this paved the way for Mr. Putin, right? And at the beginning, everybody was fairly happy about Mr. Putin, if you just read the papers. There was, there was few people who were, in the West at least, criticizing Mr. Putin. Our chairman at HRF, Gary Kasparov, from the beginning was very skeptical. But most people were, were pretty happy to see this guy. He seemed reasonable. He seemed like a strong leader that Russia needed. Um, but if you, if you started to watch, almost from the very beginning, about what Putin did, he started to basically dismantle the different sort of separations of powers and freedoms in Russia. And it's a playbook that any dictator would follow. One of the first things that you want to do is go after the oligarchs, go after the business leaders. So he tried to put all of them under his control. And the ones that kind of wouldn't listen to him, he literally seized their assets and put them in prison. He would go after the, ju- the judiciary. He would go after the legislature. He would start getting rid of people in the legislature and in the judiciary that didn't agree with him. And over time, he started going after the media too, right? So he would start to just take over certain media, get certain media, get their license taken away, murder certain people brazenly, obviously. And over time, he achieves basically this like dominance over both uh, political state and civil society in Russia. And it, you know, it took him the better part of a decade but you know, by 2010, 11, 12, it was quite clear that, that Putin's Russia was, was a dictatorship. And you know, at the end of the day, whose fault is that? There's a lot of blame to go around, but certainly a lot can be pointed at the West for allowing him to do this. 
and for basically ignoring some of the obvious signs. The same thing happened in Turkey, the same thing happened in Venezuela, where you had popular leaders who were initially elected in a free way, more or less, over time dismantle the, the democratic institutions of that country. So in many ways, the trajectory of the world has changed irreversibly because of three men, Putin, Erdogan, and Chavez. I mean, these three people could have taken their countries on a course of freedom and democracy. Instead, they built dictatorships. And it's incredibly unfortunate. I mean, the world could be such a different place if Russia and Turkey and Venezuela were all constitutional republics with freedoms and property rights and free speech and healthy innovation and scientific communities that weren't fleeing the country and entrepreneurship and booming business and like less corruption you wouldn't have things like a refugee crisis coming out of Venezuela right now. You wouldn't have things in Turkey like tens of thousands of teachers and lawyers being jailed because they disagree with the government. You wouldn't have things like the Russian government just brazenly invading you know, the countries on its periphery. So it's kind of amazing that these, one, these small events, these individual events can change so much of world history. But it shows us that we need to really pay attention to, you know, the erosion of democracy in certain countries too. And that matters for us, like you being uh, British and me being American, we need to be very careful about what's happening in our own countries and make sure that we avoid the fate of those countries. Is there any understanding or study that has been done looking into why this happens? Is it purely down to power and control from a single almost sociopathic individual and and it's a natural journey or is any of it cultural based on the history of a specific country? How, how, how does this come to be? It's a fantastic question. I mean, the subject of democracy is a rich one. And I, I, I guess I would say two things. Number one, the natural state of governance is authoritarianism. Democracy is really hard. Okay, so first of all, you have to convince the powers that be to step down or to, to give up some of their power. And that's never easy. No one ever wants to give up power. You can count the number of people who said, you know what, you know, I'm in control of everything, but I'm gonna kind of step down and give up some of my stuff. You can count them on like a couple hands, right? The second thing is, is that democracy is a universal value, meaning no matter where you are, what religion you are, what country you come from, you know, what hemisphere, etc., people have a universal yearning to want to hold their governments accountable and to not live under a dictatorship. And this is just borne out by the facts if you look at a world map, right? So for every dictatorship in the Americas, for every Cuba, there's a Costa Rica, that's a free country. For every Belarus or Russia, there's an Estonia or a Latvia, right? For every Saudi Arabia, there's a Tunisia. For every China, there's a Taiwan. For every North Korea, there's a South Korea. For every dictatorship in South Asia, there's an India. So no matter where you're from, no matter where you're part of the Christian world or the Muslim world, there are dictatorships and, and there are democracies. So saying that like, oh, these people aren't ready for democracy or like these people can't have democracy, which is often something that people say in the West about like Chinese or Arabs or Russians. This is what we call the bigotry of low expectations. Right? It's actually basically racism. It's saying that, oh, you know, democracy is only for white people. This is ridiculous. In fact, some of the largest countries in the world are democracies that are not Western. I mean, look at India or Indonesia, for example, or Japan. These are massive, massive countries. I think the three countries I just mentioned have 
you know, just combined close to 2 billion people living in them, right? So we need to get out of our bubble and understand that like democracy is not a Western concept, it's a human concept and that nobody wants to live under a tyrant. And I would say that, and of course people are gonna wanna talk about China and Singapore as like, well, you know, haven't they achieved so much? My main argument is that basically countries like China and Singapore have achieved a lot in spite of their dictatorship, not because of it. And I do think that at the end of the day, separation of powers and free expression and civil society and having a free society, not a fear society, is the best way to have human flourishing and also the best way to have equality and social justice. So quite interestingly, I, a few nights ago, I was watching Edge of Democracy on Netflix mm-hmm. about what happened in Brazil, about mm-hmm. the transition from dictatorship into democracy mm-hmm. with, is it President Lula? And one of the things that was quite interesting there is that it wasn't an easy transition because he had to do a deal with the Communist Party, as I believe it. I, I can't remember the full details. But these were people who wanted democracy. <laughs> you know, these were the workers, the workers' party of, of Brazil. They wanted democracy. For anyone to say nobody wants democracy and people want less freedom, I think is kind of crazy. Yeah, I mean, I think where people get confused is they think that the, the act of voting is, is the most important part of democracy, and I think that's wrong. So from what I've observed and learned, uh, elections, you know, voting someone into power is kind of like the cherry on top of the democratic system. First you need free expression, then you need separation of powers, then you need civil society. And only then if you have all these three things do the elections matter. I mean, Kim Jong-un has elections. I mean, Hitler was elected, many dictators were elected. Putin is elected as, as I'm sure you read when you first were looking at it. Oh, he's you know elected comfortably all these different times. Paul Kagame in Rwanda was elected by 99.8% of the vote last time. So all these people get elected. The actual act of electing someone is not what matters in a democracy. It's all the other things that come before it. So when you look at a country like Brazil, which on its sort of face is you know technically a democracy, has enormous problems with regard to separation of powers, has enormous problems when it comes to civil society, has enormous problems when it comes to free speech. So, you know, nothing's black or white. I mean, we can't say Brazil's a dictatorship because one person does not control everything. And there is free media there. And there are enormous numbers of civil society organizations and different lobbying groups and different, you know, groups that are pushing for different things. It's an open society, but it's certainly a deeply flawed one. And it's it's one that, that like every country, needs a lot of work and, and needs the international community to pay attention to what's going on there so we can make sure that, especially the disenfranchised, don't get abused. Turkey is also another interesting case. Again, as somebody who... As only recently, I would say in the last two years, started to understand or appreciate what's happening there. My children are there right now. They're mm-hmm. on holiday. Mm-hmm. You know, as a, I would say, as an uneducated person on the, what's really happening in Turkey, I'm under the belief, well, if my children go on holiday there, it must be fine. It must be safe. But actually, it's not. And the last time they were there was with the attempted coup. Mm-hmm. So... Is this an example of almost a state which is transitioning into a dictatorship? I mean, Turkey's already a dictatorship. It's a fully authoritarian regime, meaning Erdogan has control of everything. Anyone who he views as a threat or he doesn't like has been removed from their position of power. And we're not even talking just politics. Uh, We're talking in schools. 
We're talking in judges, lawyers. I mean, thousands of lawyers have lost their jobs because they've been affiliated with a different religious sect than what Erdogan approves of, or they've been overheard to say something unfavorable, unfavorable about him. I mean, we're talking one of the largest professional purges in history. I mean, tens and tens of thousands of professionals, teachers, lawyers, judges, have been fired from their posts. Sounds and a like lot the of them are prisons. Well, I mean, there are, there are no death camps, so you know everything's different. And this is not. Uh, we have to like kind of be careful about how we classify things. But it's it's certainly a dictatorship. The thing is, elections do matter in Turkey, and you know he has been losing some elections in big ways, both like at the municipal level and in regional areas. I mean, he's kind of very much just sort of holding on to his power. The only reason he's still in power now is because he did all this work over the last decade to dismantle all of these different checks and balances. So, you know, because he was able to remove so many influential people who don't like him or disagree with him from their posts, he's sort of clinging on to power still. But, you know, Turkish democracy definitely died. I mean, you know, in the last decade. Now, will it come back to life? Certainly at some point but uh, not not under his reign. Is there anything the international community can do to prevent this happening in mm-hmm. places like Turkey? Obviously, Russia's a, a much more difficult case, but is there anything the European Union can do? Like, yeah. How can things I mean, be different? Look, it, it all comes down to principles. It all comes down to standing up for principles and defying uh, dictatorships and, and standing up for human rights over economic interests which is, to be frank, going to be difficult. One of the reasons why China and Russia and Turkey are able to do what they do to their own people is that the West is too weak and cowardly, essentially, to stand up for the rights and freedoms of people in those countries. And they're too willing to just basically take the money and ignore what's happening. Well, I think a perfect example of that is my own country... Arms deals with Saudi Arabia. I mean, after the murder, murder of, of Khashoggi. Yeah, I mean, after the murder of Khashoggi, we still continue to sell arms. Well, and it's not just... I mean, look, as horrible as the murder of Khashoggi was, we have to take a step back. I mean, this is a government in Saudi Arabia that still crucifies people, mm-hmm. that still beheads people, that tortures and rapes female political prisoners who yep. are in jail, as you and I are talking right now. I mean, I've um, read about some 13-year-old who was arrested for dissent and now is facing the death penalty? I mean, there are so many problems with the Saudi government, it's hard to list them all. But even just to to mention a couple more examples, there are huge numbers of people who live in Saudi Arabia who are not citizens, who are there to work, and they're basically indentured servants, and they're treated like crap, and they have no rights. And then think about the war that the Saudi government is fighting in Yemen. I mean, we're talking about the massacre of so many civilians and the starvation of millions, right? I mean, so MBS, Mohammed bin Salman's Mm -hmm. crimes are are legion. And yeah, your government's totally fine with selling weapons. My government too. Now there is starting to become a little bit of a resistance inside the US government, given that we have something called separation of powers. Trump has not been able to basically delete the legislature and replace the legislature with all of his own people. This is literally what you know dictatorships do. I mean, in Venezuela, Chavez created his own legislature, his own legislature. So this would be like if Trump said one day, "I don't like the Senate and and the and the and the House. I'm going to create the Trump Assembly, 
and it's going to be filled with all the best people, like the best people, my favorite people. And that's who's going to make the laws. This literally has happened in dozens of countries. So people just need to get a little perspective. The fact that the U.S. government is built on this sort of like idea that there should be checks and balances and there are really young, diverse, defiant, you know, people who've been elected by the American electorate, you know, and quite a few of them are like, they've had enough of the Saudi policy and they're standing up for it and they're trying to make a difference and they will eventually, if they just keep being persistent, we will eventually stop selling weapons to Saudi Arabia. We, we will eventually cut off our relationship with them. It's just going to be a matter of time. But will that change the behavior of the Saudi government or will the Saudi government have new arms agreements with China or Russia and nothing actually change? I think we have to have guarded optimism here. Okay. Um, it will change. Um, it, it would be a huge pain in the ass for the Saudi government not to have the total support of the American government. Maybe not so much from like an oil point of view, but from a security policy point of view. Saudi Arabia is locked in a kind of a cold war with Iran. If you, if you look at the geopolitical context of the Middle East, you have two major actors right now. You have Saudi Arabia and you have Iran. And there's kind of like a little cold war going on. And it's a proxy war, just, just like the original cold war was. Meaning the United States and Israel are on the Saudi side and Russia is very much on the Iranian side. And you've got little proxy conflicts, right? You've got the Iranian government propping up Assad in Syria and sponsoring all kinds of militias there. You see them constantly flying back and forth and supporting each other. You also have the Iranians supporting militias in Yemen. And then you have the Saudis, uh, you know, launching a war in Yemen, right? So in, in each of these little theaters in Yemen and Syria, even in Sudan, you see these different actors kind of playing off each other. And the United Arab Emirates is on the side of the Saudi government. So you look at a place like Sudan, where the people just bravely overthrew a, a dictator who'd been in power for decades, Omar al-Bashir. And, you know, they were ready to take power and ready to kind of like set up a democracy. And the United Arab Emirates, basically, and you know, this guy MBZ, uh, who's kind of like in league with MBS in Saudi Arabia, they came in and they basically provided support to the military. And now the military is trying to like prevent an actual democracy from taking place. So there's a ton of like regional political manipulation happening in every part of the world today. One of the things I've noticed as well with dictatorships, there seems to be a strong correlation between whether it's socialism, Marxism, or communism and dictatorships. Why is that? Is there a history behind that? Is it because, for example, if we look at Venezuela, Chavez was a mm -hmm. socialist, it's a, he had populist policies. Why does that correlation seem yeah. to exist? I mean, look, I, I think it depends on your perspective. I could also say that there's a lot of democracies that have practice democratic social, that, that, that basically are social democracies that have socialism in different ways that are quite successful and haven't sent the Jews to Siberia. You could look at Norway as an example, mm -hmm. right? I think it has more to do in the end with authoritarianism than it does with trying to set up a welfare state. I mean, a lot of libertarians may say the opposite. They may say, oh, you know, like any sort of government run program is the road to serfdom. So I don't agree with that. I think you can like clearly look at Northern Europe and Scandinavia and say that like liberal democracies that, that you know, treasure free speech and press freedom and property rights can also have welfare states. And if you read like Adam Smith, even Hayek, like they'll, they'll hint at this or even say it explicitly that they believe that free countries and free societies and free markets should support the most vulnerable, right? So 
I don't necessarily think that there's a contradiction between freedom and democracy and, and having social welfare. The problem is when you have democratic socialism, right? And this is what you would use to describe a country like Venezuela. When you have a government that comes in and says, look, we're going to like seize the means of production and we're going to make the decisions about how the economy is going to work, that always ends in disaster, always. And it's not because they're following any one particular economic religion or the writings of one particular thinker. It's just generally speaking, when you disable the free market and you seize the means of production and you have a bunch of morons making the decisions about you know, where, where the economic flows should go, this ruins a country. I mean, you don't have to look any further than Venezuela for proof of this. Venezuela used to be like the richest country in Latin America. This used to be the place where like people would flee from dictatorships in Chile and in Argentina in the 70s and 80s, they would go to, to Venezuela as a place to seek refuge. It was the first country in the hemisphere, I think, to, to get rid of malaria. It was the first country in the continent to have a constitution. I mean, it was, it was so much more advanced in many ways than even Europe and in, in the United States in, in, in many aspects. And it kind of like coasted into this like very stagnant kind of corrupt period in the 80s and 90s just enough so that Chavez was able to kind of like come to power in this populist wave. And he started to destroy the country. The sad part is a lot of the world was super excited about Chavez. I mean, and, and I want to talk about this in terms of like having a, an incomplete view of, of you know, uh, of information. Is this because we would see him drive his Volkswagen Beetle live in his little house well, and give the impression of this guy he wasn't corrupt. If you have an incomplete view, then you may have seen Chavez and heard him talk about how he wanted to challenge the United States and how he thought that like the free market was unfair and that he was going to like help the poor and you may have said, "Oh, this sounds pretty cool. Awesome. Fuck yeah, go Chavez." But if you actually looked at what was happening, with complete information, you would have seen that he was arresting people that disagreed with him, that he was taking away the licenses of media stations, of, of the press, and, which is like the most important thing for a free society, for a functioning society, is journalism. He was attacking reporters. He was having people murdered. He was presiding over a government that, by the end of his life, had, at the, at the local level, a homicide rate where I think fewer than um, 5% of all crimes were even ever solved. So basically, like, his government could just, like, have police go kill people and no one would ever get in trouble for it. And where Venezuela in general, especially Caracas, was more dangerous than Baghdad by the end of his, by the end of his term. But at the beginning, people were super psyched about him just because he was, like, nationalist and he was promising to nationalize and to basically say, you know, fuck George Bush. And, you know, pe people, like, kind of, like, projected their desires onto this guy, you know, and they were like, oh, this is so cool. We can support this upstart leader. It has become such a disaster. And people need to realize that they need to have a full, complete picture of information about someone before jumping on the bandwagon. Like, do your homework. This is like people who wear a Che Guevara shirt. And they, they're wearing a Che Guevara shirt walking around town. They don't realize that this guy was a mass murderer personally, who murdered a lot of people, who built prison camps in Cuba for gays and Afro-Cubans, basically who put blacks and gays and intellectuals in prison camps and murdered them. And they're walking around with his, sh his face on their shirt. They've been told it's a cool t-shirt. They haven't even been told much. They just think it's cool. Yeah. But do your homework, folks. I mean, like basically, this guy was involved in a plot where he was going to blow up 
using like 1,200 tons of, of explosives. Huge parts of downtown Manhattan on the day after Thanksgiving and one of the busiest days of the year. I mean, he was gonna try and commit a 9-11 essentially against civilians. This is like very well known. And again, this is someone who's as anti-progressive as you can imagine, totally against gay rights, totally against women's rights. I mean, totally racist, etc. But they wear him on their shirt as this like symbol of resistance. I mean, come on, people, you can do better. Well, revolutions are cool. Well, yeah, I mean, again, some revolutions are cool. Um, but but the, the thought of revolution is cool. The thought of revolution is cool, but you have to, it's all about the execution. I work with a lot of people who've participated in the democratic revolution and evolution of their countries. And they always say what happens after the revolution is the toughest part, right? So it might be easy enough to overthrow a dictator. The hard part is what happens next. How do you build a society that's actually better than what came before it? You know, most of the time this fails. Most of the time, the liberator becomes a dictator. I mean, if you just look at the numbers, most revolutions don't turn into democracies or a better society. They don't break the wheel, right? They, they just recreate. Why does this happen? Because, it's, like, uh, I mean, I might be thinking this in such simplistic terms, but I get confused between wanting to, ha to enjoying the fact that we have certain social policies in the UK. Like, I enjoy having things like the NHS, and it gets a lot of criticism, and I take a lot of backlash from mm -hmm. it because all forms of socialism are terrible. But, by the by, I can't ever see myself degrading myself to the point where I would want to just put people in prison who disagree with me or or instructing death squads to kill people who disagree well, with me. So how does somebody become like that? Or are they already like that? How I think that's what I'm saying. I think it takes just some nuance. I mean, again... You can have a free country with property rights and press freedom and free speech and have a robust social welfare program. You can, of course, have free basic health care. You can have free detailed health care. As long as it's done in, in a way where there's accountability and oversight and transparency from the people, okay? There's a lot of problems maybe with the NHS, but I think a lot of people would be very proud of it, right? Yeah. And this can coexist in a society where people do not get arrested for criticizing the government. No, I'm more trying to understand how a person becomes a leader and then becomes so corrupt as an individual that the imprisonment of innocent people and the murder of innocent people becomes okay. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. I mean, if you look at the cases of someone like Castro, Fidel Castro or Robert Mugabe, they were both liberators, you know, they mm -hmm. both heroically, you know, overthrew a terrible colonialist regime or, you know, you know, US-backed dictatorship in Cuba. However, instead of basically setting up the, the groundwork for a better society for their people, they decided to become kings. They decided to own everything. They decided to set up their own dictatorship. And that's kind of what they'll be judged on in history for. You could say the same thing about, as I was saying before, this window of time that Putin and Erdogan and Chavez had. They could have actually set up the foundation for a prosperous, and equal and wealthy country. And instead they decided to basically steal all the money and get rid of everybody that didn't like them. And that is gonna set their countries back decades, right? I mean, Venezuela is looking at, even if, even if the opposition comes to power and they're not corrupt and, and things work out relatively well politically, we're looking at a two decade healing process to get Venezuela back to where it was before. These, these decisions, can, can be generational ones, right? Yeah, I, I guess what I'm trying to understand myself, are, are these just greedy 
I, I touched on this earlier. These people just greedy, control freak, narcissist, sociopaths, who all they care about is control and power and want to retain power as much as because they, they're elevated by the power they've gained. I just think humans are imperfect and we need these rules and these these frameworks to prevent us from doing what you know from from being our worst selves right and we we, that's why we need separation of powers that's why we need a free media to criticize us when we're doing something bad that's why we need civil society groups to pressure us when we when we make laws that might hurt the environment or hurt a particular minority we need all of this sort of check balance activity to, to make a healthy society there's a guy named mo ibrahim and he's a billionaire from sudan and he set up a foundation, the Mo Ibrahim Foundation. And he made all his wealth in telecoms and he decided he wanted to help African nations do better. So he set up a prize called the Mo Ibrahim Prize. And I think it's the largest cash prize in the world. It offers $2 million a year to any democratically elected leader in Africa who steps down after their term is over. Meaning like they might have two terms and that's it, right? He can never give the prize away. And it's like really sad, but I think he's given it away like three times over the last like 15 years. Because usually leaders in this particular continent, you know, don't step down. And again, they're probably looking at this two, $2 million a year and they're like, I steal a billion, you know, straight out of the treasury every year or something like that, right? Like what's two million? But it strikes to the heart of like how difficult it is and how rare it is to find a ruler who's willing to step down. It's not common, so that's why we really need infrastructure. So it's good that Mo Ibrahim's trying to like encourage democratically elected leaders to do better, but we all need to realize it's pretty rare for that sort of shift from single party politics to multi-party politics to exist. I got a chance to meet a guy in Taiwan who they call Mr. Democracy, and he was part of the ruling party that had been the dictatorship's party for decades, the KMT party, right? The American-backed party in Taiwan. And in the 90s, he was part of that regime. And he was actually given a choice to open up real free and, fee- free and fair elections f- to the people. And he did so, and he lost, right? So his party lost those elections a little more than 15 years ago, right? And what's so funny is, and I got to meet him maybe three, four years ago. He's very old at this point. But he is like hated by his own party and loved by the opposition in many ways because you know, his own party blames him for, for, you know, giving everything up. And the opposition loves him because, you know, he led them to come into power. But he's a very rare person. There aren't that many people around the world who would willingly step down. And, and you, read a, you read someone like George Washington constantly talk about this, but this, this, this idea of like having limits and having laws and having separation of powers and having these restrictions on what we can do. Because again, humans are imperfect and you know we have excesses and you know no one's no one's ultimately morally good we're all just different shades of good and bad you know are there many examples of countries which have had you know many decades of open fair free elections perfectly operating democratic societies that have sunk back into a dictatorship now i know we've talked about turkey mm-hmm. i don't have enough of an understanding of the history of turkey to know pre-Eridan, what it was like, but... It wasn't a perfect democracy, but there were more or less free and fair elections, you know, over time. Sometimes the military would come in Mm -hmm. and overrule those. You know, so Turkey had this nasty history of, like, the military would come in after a period of democracy and end it. 
by installing their own regime again. Similar things have happened in Pakistan. But as far as your question of like, is there a country which was pretty much free and fair for a while and then a coup came in, right? Yeah. Or uh, someone was elected who then took power. I think we can look at a couple examples, unfortunately. Thailand is a great one. Okay, yeah. Thailand was more or less a free country. And then this military uh, came in during a period of instability in 2014. And this guy Prayut has been the dictator ever since. And he's like a comic, comic dictator, like a Borat type, like has his giant poster everywhere in the city and basically has created these like absurd songs that people have to sing about him. I mean, and this is what the Thai people have to deal with. It's horrible. Another one would be Hungary, actually, which is in the heart of Europe, which was mm-hmm. a free country for you know, many years after the fall of the Soviet Union and recently has come under the rule of Viktor Orban, who is trying to regress the country in many ways. He's pushing the country in this sort of nationalist populist narrative. So, and he's obviously more, he's characterized as sort of a sort of a right-wing person. So I think what people need to realize about democracy and dictatorship is it's not a left-right thing. There are left-wing dictatorships and there are right-wing dictatorships. We, they're all bad. We need to have, as I think one thing that I agree with Christopher Hitchens on is that he had this term of consistent anti-totalitarianism. We need to have consistency when it comes to dictatorship. We need to say that the left-wing ones are just as bad as the right-wing ones. So we can't allow our own politics and beliefs to color the lives and experiences of what other people are gonna have to go through. We should just say like without a doubt that that's bad and let's try and help them achieve change. See, I guess what I'm trying to understand is that could this happen anywhere? And I don't see it as binary that, you know, for example, if we look at the US, I don't think it's a binary thing that the US would suddenly one day become a dictatorship. But are there certain actions that we should be wary of? For example, should we watch Donald Trump constantly referring to press as fake news? Is that... Absolutely. Is this where we start to see encroachments? Is this where we start to see somebody maybe push the limits? I, I, from my observation, I, I tend to think that our system is much stronger than, than many other countries, just that's a lot older. Our freedom of the press is really strong. We have very strong First Amendment mm-hmm. rights. States have a lot of rights. There are There's an incredible strength to the Supreme Court and the judiciary system to the point where even people that Trump appoints onto the Supreme Court will often disagree with things that he wants, right? So the, the, it's very hard for him to do whatever he wants to do. Now, if you removed Trump from the U.S. system and put him in Egypt or put him in Burma, I mean, he would go crazy and he would do whatever he wants, but it's the system that restrains him, right? Clearly, we need to be very vigilant. We need to make sure that we protect the free press, I think, first and foremost. And yeah, it's very unfortunate that he's basically kind of like using the same terminology as dictators, but I do reject this, this, people constantly put Trump in the, they're like, oh yeah, look who's ruling the world now. Xi Jinping and Trump, and no, you can't, you can't equate Trump with Xi Jinping and, and, and someone like Sisi in Egypt, or you know, someone like Maduro in Venezuela, or Kim Jong-un, you, you just cannot, they're just different. You may not like Trump, but that does not mean he's a dictator. Trump is the leader of a democratic country. I don't like him, but he's not a dictator. And, but, and don't let him become one, you know? But are they different, or are they leading under different frameworks? Personally, I'm not a psychologist. He, is, he appears to have an authoritarian personality, based on what we can understand. He's very vengeful. He doesn't let anybody forget anything that they've done wrong against him. He still writes these petty letters to people who wronged him years ago. He's clearly very, 
prone to kind of like nationalistic, populistic uh, rhetoric. He's unapologetically a racist, all these different things. But again, he's not a dictator. You might not like him, but do not like go into this like moral equivalence thing. The United States is not a dictatorship. Mm-hmm. Now, could it become one? Absolutely. I'm less concerned about the political system breaking down and more concerned about how technology is going to change society and how we may over time, like a frog being boiled in water, give up our rights. And I'm, I'm very concerned about this happening in both Britain and the United States. I think that we're becoming surveillance societies. I think that people are giving up control over their data too much. I think that people have already given up control over their money. And I think we're at risk of like some sort of corporate government kind of uh, sort of takeover over time that's gradual, where in 40 years we sit around and we realize shit, we don't have any rights anymore. That, I think, yeah. could totally happen. Well, this is, this is what's happening. This is where it's happening in both democracies and dictatorships. I mean... Totally, but in dictatorships, it's happening way faster. Yeah. I mean, you've pointed me in the direction of what's happening in China with mm-hmm. the social cre- credit scoring, which is itself scary. Mm-hmm. But we, at the same time, I'm recognizing, you know, what's happening in the UK, mm-hmm. London, the most surveilled country in the world, yeah. or the most surveilled city. We're both personally aware of what's happening with financial surveillance because of our involvement in Bitcoin. Yes. These are encroachments on freedom, Absolutely. which I guess kind of happened under the radar whilst you're living in a democracy. Yeah, and look, while we still have that ability to live in a country that has separation of powers, there's things that you and I can do. So like we can fund nonprofits. Like in America, I can donate to the Electronic Frontier Foundation and they can sue the US government for overreach. We can support whether it's The Guardian or The New York Times or whatever newspaper we want and they can investigate the government and they can expose scandals, right? There are tons of nonprofits in Britain and the United States. I think in the United States, there's more than 80,000 nonprofits that exist that check the government's power. So there are things that we can do in our countries to Where prevent does, the, the rise of dictatorship. Where does WikiLeaks fit in this example you've given here? Because that was an example. The reason I raise it mm-hmm. is that our ability to donate to it was taken away by MasterCard and Visa, right. and, and we actually had to go to Bitcoin. So where does yeah. that fit into that? I mean, look, I, I think some people will say that WikiLeaks is a media outlet. Some people will say it's an activist group. I mean, I don't, I don't know if there's a straight answer to that. Mm. I think whistleblowing is unquestionably important, super important. I think that there's an art to it and probably an ethics to it. And I think that generally speaking, major newspapers like the Washington Post and The Guardian have like a certain understanding of like how to properly whistleblow to both protect the whistleblower, but also the people who are going to get exposed by that new information. I think it's a little bit of a balancing act. Um, WikiLeaks blanket releases. Yeah, I mean, and look, uh, you can say that that changed the course of history in some ways, but I think the way that Snowden did it probably changed history more in in a larger way, and I think it was partly because he was kind of more careful about the way he was doing things. So I think I think whistleblowing is something we need to protect in democratic societies, but there's certainly like an art to it, and there's certainly a responsibility, uh, you know of journalists to try and protect people who might get hurt by that information. So there's no, there's no, I don't think there's like a, I don't think there's a straight answer on it, but it's certainly something people need to be considerate about when, when they're, when they're doing these things. Back to financial surveillance. Why should we be concerned? You know, I've got nothing to hide. 
is be the standard answer right. I would uh, have from friends. Why should we care about financial surveillance? Yeah, I mean, I think it's linked to surveillance more generally. Right. I okay. mean, the, the, I've got nothing to hide. You know, what do I have to hide? It is the slippery slope, right? Mm-hmm. Now, in China, that's manifested itself so much so that, like, you know, people generally speaking are very supportive of surveillance. There's like advertisements on on WeChat and other mobile media where like companies are advertising their surveillance technology. There's a really popular one that that came out a couple months ago and it's basically police wearing these like, you know, facial recognition sunglasses to chase somebody who stole a bike. And they're running after him on the street and then the guy hops a fence and then he puts on a different wig and everything and he seems to get away but then like the facial recognition gets him, you know, like even though he kind of put on a different hat. And and they're like this is this is part of like where the average Chinese person is like, oh, this is cool. Like, I totally want to buy that phone, you know, or whatever. So the Chinese government has been able to pitch facial recognition and your loss of freedoms as like a good thing, as a good thing for like stability, nationalism, national security. And that's been a big victory for them, which is which is going to be hard to reverse. But for us, I think we need to think about not just what, what we would lose, but what the most vulnerable would lose. I think what we're going to start seeing is that um, potentially, unless we sort of take the right steps, privacy is going to be something for the elite potentially and only for the wealthy, especially as we go into the area of potentially people being able to sell their own data. I mean, right now, like no one owns their own data, which is the worst case scenario. But we might start getting into this area of like, okay, fine, like you have some rights over your data. Well, like, you know, if we do it the wrong way, like, you know, poor people are probably just going to sell like all their own data and like wealthy people won't. And then there's going to be like one half of the society that's very surveilled and one half that's not, right? Or 98% that's surveilled and two that's 2% that's not. So I think we need to be really careful about setting up these systems. But at the end of the day, I, you know, when it comes to financial surveillance, I think we need to be quite cognizant about the fact that your spend um, says more about you than your words. You know, your payments say more about you than your words. There's a story I'll share the other day, which might drive the point home for some of your viewers. That's got two parts to it. And I've used this in in an essay that that I have coming out on, on Medium tomorrow about why we need to think carefully about supporting the Lightning Network and and what it could be and what it could mean for for the rest of the world. But essentially, I went to the store down the street to buy some dog food for my dog. I walked down the street and I went into the dog food store and I bought a bag of food for the dog and then I bought a bag of like treats for the dog that were shaped like toothbrushes, right? And I went to the register and I checked out and I paid with my Visa card and I walked out of the store. And a couple minutes later, I happened to check Twitter. And I was hit with an advertisement for toothbrush-shaped dog treats. And I was thinking to myself, how is this possible? This wasn't an online purchase. This was in-store. And even if it was the geolocation on my phone that betrayed me to the data markets, how would it know about the toothbrush-shaped dog treats? I might have bought bird food or I might have bought cat food. So it had to have been the payment provider. And this led me to do some research, and it looks like that Chase when you ask them, when you when you actually go reach out to them, they will admit that they share your payment data with third parties, right? So we live in a world where like we are buying things and then get hitting immediate, getting hit immediately with advertisements. Our purchases are not private, right? And the, the even crazier part, which I still don't know exactly how this happened, my, I, I told this story to a friend of mine and she was telling it to her sister separately a day later 
a well away from me, like in you know, a different town. And she told this story to her sister and, you know, her sister, I guess, was checking Instagram a few hours later. And then she saw the advertisement for the dog treats. So we're trying to think about how is this possible? I mean, maybe it's coincidence. Maybe Greenies is doing like an intense operation to promote its product. But this woman doesn't have a dog. She's never bought any dog food. One Occam's razor idea is that the iPhone microphone had picked up them discussing this. It's a possibility, right? We know it happens in China. In China, the, the, the recognition software is such that it's not just when you type a sentence about something politically sensitive like Tiananmen, it's when you speak about it. So they have software that can like analyze the voice just as fast as images or text today. So there's no reason why Western advertisers wouldn't have similar technology. But this really underlines the fact that like we're already totally surveilled and we need to start fighting for our rights now. And it starts with money. Because the problem isn't so much with you being shown dog food again, but it's perhaps some of your purchases might identify you as a certain political leaning, certain charities you support, certain taboo purchases you might. You know, you deserve the right not to have people know that. What if you want to make a donation to the Electronic Frontier Foundation? Or to, like, something very provocative, like you want to make a donation to, like, a free speech group or a pro-gun rights group or Mm -hmm. you want to pay for an abortion. You know, do you really want to get punished for those things? Those things should be private to you. Or, in the case of Facebook, where we have the scandal with Cambridge Analytica, with Brittany Kaiser, who've exposed that, Mm -hmm. the potential is actually that you are either somebody that wants to manipulate or know can manipulate other people. So what we're trying to do is prevent the things two steps ahead, the real sinister acts, because showing you another toothbrush-shaped dog treat isn't itself... Right. The, the, the problem is not the, the advertisements for harmless dog treats. The real problem is the slippery slope, which leads to prison camps, essentially, which, reads, which leads to a corporate government complex that can control you and start to change your behavior. That's what we need to be on guard against. And I think what's kind of staggering is we're seeing it play out live in China today. We don't. This isn't some Black Mirror episode. This is actually what's happening. People's behavior is getting steered that they are patriotic. And if they do anything, if they even borderline think of anything unpatriotic, they get punished for that. So this is something that I think we need to be careful about. And I do think the solution is in many ways creating a private payment network for the world so that we can transact and interact with each other without exposing all of our identity. I think that's one of the key ways we can prevent the rise of the global surveillance state and preserve our democracies in line with our conversation so far. And is this all come back to the same thing? Does it all come back to control, maintaining control? So what's happening now in China with Mm -hmm. the social credit scores that you can't criticize, that you are conditioned to behave in a certain way, almost like training a pet, is this all come back to retaining control? You are creating an obedient society. Yeah, let me let me just add some color to that and take 30 seconds for your listeners. So I have a friend who just got back from a year in China. He's getting married to a Chinese person. And the agreement was he's an American. He had to go live in China for a year. So he was in a lot of these classes about education. He worked there. He got to meet a lot of Chinese uh, people. He had a lot of Chinese friends. One of his Chinese friends was in a WeChat group. WeChat's the dominant social media platform there that's highly surveilled and censored. And she was like connected to someone who was uh, selling pot. And it's obviously, marijuana is very illegal there, right? So 
one day, she was literally, she worked at his office. Some plainclothes policemen came to the office where he was at, and they told her, they went to her desk, they came upstairs, they went to her desk, and they said that she needed to leave now. And she got, she was given like two minutes to gather her things, and then she left, and she disappeared for like weeks. They didn't know where she went. And she was imprisoned. And she was imprisoned because her friend, somebody who was connected to on social media, the government realized was, was, was dealing, dealing drugs and she was connected to him. And they, they interrogated her and they eventually released her, but they basically cut off her financial abilities. She can no longer like buy train tickets or leave the country or um, buy plane tickets or get a good rate on loans or mortgages. Like her, her credit score has become destroyed because, through association. Yeah, through association with someone who was like dealing pot. So this isn't this is to give an example of something that's like, oh, what do I have to hide? Well, what if you enjoy smoking marijuana in society? You know, what if you enjoy doing something that's like a little, you know, risky? Well, what if it could ruin your entire life in this way, right? So this is happening all over China. And what I'm most scared about is not the person who's smoking pot, but the person who says, "Hey, I don't like the government," right? So when we when Peter mentions social credit, it's this idea that you can take credit score and your ability to like get a loan or get a credit card or have like financial benefits in society is tied reasonably to like how well you've performed there in the past. That seems fine. What's not reasonable is to start tying your identity, your religion, your gender, your sexuality, and your political beliefs and your friends to that credit score. And that's what's happening in China today over time in different experiments across the country. And it's certainly coming to other countries too, unless we stop it. And this is why I really think it's important to separate our payments from our identities. This is key. So if I can like pay for things, if I can subscribe to Peter's podcast and buy something on Amazon and subscribe to a political magazine and buy a public transit ticket without exposing my whole identity, then we really help fight the surveillance state, right? So if we wanna fight Big Brother, we have to like reduce our digital footprints. So this is why I'm very excited about Lightning. I'm trying to follow Lightning as closely as possible because I believe in this idea of like a, a global private payment network where at least below a certain amount of money, maybe a few thousand dollars, like we can have small anonymous payments and we can keep the values of cash alive in a digital society. This is, this is very important to me. And if I'm using Lightning to pay for dog food, I'm not gonna get hit with a dog food advertisement 20 seconds later because the company is not gonna be able to see that I've bought dog food. It won't be like Alex Gladstein who lives at this address in California, who has this Facebook profile, who has this Google search profile. None of those things will be connected if I start using these sort of like, you know, like basically like anonymous payments to make to make the transactions in my in my daily routine. I will be, instead of like this centralized, easily predictable data narrative that I am now, where I'm like this walking freaking target for advertisement, I will be like this obscure set of distributed sets of data that like are just harder to predict and harder for advertisers to target and harder for governments to control and harder for corporations to manipulate. And I think that's like kind of the dream of a lot of people right now. And they may not realize that we are we have the roadmap for that now with potentially with Bitcoin and Lightning. And it's something that I'm excited to explore and something that I think has massive implications for the future of democracies, basically. Well, that's what brought you and I together, Bitcoin. That was the middle mm -hmm. ground. And I guess what we're saying here is like 
Bitcoin is a one of the few tools we have out there which nobody can control, which in using is itself an act of defiance. It is saying, this is my money that you can't touch. You can't take from me. This is a chance for us to, I guess... Because using Bitcoin, like, like it's an act of defiance, but it's also an expression that I want, I'm going to do something outside of the government. This is me. This is something you can't control. I kind of like it like that. Yeah, I mean, and I think that sometimes we need to be a little optimistic. Yeah. We have so many dark, dark dystopian dreams of the future. So I want to read a little something. It's my prediction of a positive future that we can mm -hmm. achieve with technology like encryption and with Bitcoin. So, the year is 2030. It is now 10 years past today. Due to industry demand and massive popularity, the last restrictions in democracies like yours and mine are lifted on lightning payments. The scalable off-chain instant Bitcoin payment network, first outlined in a 2016 white paper, has come a long way. With legal clarity, it's now possible to send Bitcoin, unlinked to your identity, to an open source non-custodial lightning wallet and buy just about anything immediately all while maximally protecting your privacy. Small daily payments are essentially anonymous again. Catching the bad guys is just as easy or as hard as it was a few decades ago, as merchants must inform the government about lightning transactions over $2,500, and users must disclose some aspect of their identity for those purchases in order to get the payment to go through. So very large payments like tuition, real estate, cars, loans, goods, are still done through maybe base layer Bitcoin or through fiat money and remain traceable. But again, small payments are anonymous and that helps protect our privacy. Social media companies 10 years from now, of course, ended up following Facebook's lead and launched their own currencies. Some still exist and are used heavily, but none turned out to be as fast or easy to use and certainly not as globally compatible or permissionless as Lightning. Some of the biggest social media companies end up ditching their own mobile payment currencies for Lightning-based solutions. The borderless nature of Lightning creates a financial revolution in as much as individuals can buy and sell things around the world instantly with extremely few restrictions and without needing to prove their identity. Old obstacles of currency conversion and bank account delays and freezes are left behind. Banking the unbanked becomes an anachronism as the disenfranchised sees this new tool to connect and transact without permission from elites. Lightning is still technically illegal in many countries, including China, but black markets are popular. And in most democracies, Lightning has become the evolutionary successor to paper and metal money, which has become the curiosity of an older age. In this new world, we only give merchants what they need. Merchants only take from us what they want. Advertisers have been forced to change their strategies. Tech visionaries like Jaron Lanier once spoke of a new internet where we could interact with each other in a peer-to-peer -peer way without being exploited and spied on. Lightning has brought us one step closer to that reality. In the late 2010s, there was a lot of talk about decentralized identity, but this doesn't matter as much anymore. Now that you control your micropayments and your interactions with your voice-controlled devices and the ever-increasing internet of things, you don't have a single clustered digital identity anymore. Companies don't see you as they once did, as an easy and coherent data narrative to leak to advertisers, but only as obscured pieces of data, difficult to link together. You, of course, still have a physical address and a phone number, but they aren't meaningfully connected to your day-to-day -day payments. Few people have goods shipped directly to their homes, as this is a major privacy concern. Rather, they pick them up at community lockboxes, similar to Amazon's lockers today. Wearables and voice assistants and implants have exploded in popularity, but zero-knowledge encryption has made it possible for people to begin to store private data locally on their devices. 
and individuals share only what they choose to share with the data markets. Of course, most people sell quite a bit to the data markets, but they can conduct that business over Lightning and they don't have to disclose their full spectrum of personal information like they once did without even thinking. Lightning has revolutionized gaming and social media. Individuals are able to use the network to make streaming micropayments to each other. The best video game players in the world make money in a flow over time, as do the best podcasters and musicians. We consume media and articles on an a la carte basis, paying tiny amounts via our Lightning, being our Lightning accounts. Government agencies and corporate HR departments eventually catch on. And they offer an option for you to receive your salary or welfare in small increments every minute rather than one big chunk every two weeks, reducing the stress on the average blue-collar worker or unemployed citizen. In-person shopping is even more convenient than it was in the cash era, as payments are made with a quick tap or scan, and the merchants get the funds immediately. Fraud and refunds are still retail problems as they are today, but insurance companies have changed their business model to accommodate the new system. From a human rights perspective, protest has gotten a little bit easier, especially in democracies where it's possible to use lightning combined with facial recognition deterring masks to buy public transit tickets and SIM cards so that citizens can organize and protest without being easily spied on. The tactics that cash once made possible in places like Hong Kong are still usable even in a more digital world. Crime rates are similar to historic rates from earlier decades when everyday transactions were strictly cash. Despite what governments once said, there isn't all of a sudden more child porn and more human trafficking and more terrorism as these activities are still illegal and law enforcement remains effective. The idea that you have to give up your rights and privacy for security turns out to be a lie and a myth. So that's the world that I'd love us to live in. <laughs> all right, so listen, look, of course, and that's amazing, and I will need to, I'll need to listen to that a couple of times and digest it and take that in, but... It seems to me that you are aligning freedom and the core and back of freedom and it's almost like it's how much Bitcoin can do for this. By taking control of financial privacy, then we, we'll, we'll be able to retain a lot of control over our freedoms. I've really articulated that terribly. <laughs> it's so much similar to the way we open this podcast in terms of how better political constructs, better governments for humans have checks and balances, right? We need to be able to check the power of the authorities. We need to be able to check the power of monopolies. And democracy is our tool to do that in politics, right? Democracy is our way to hold governments accountable, create space for civil society, create space for free expression, right? In the same way that um, the internet has made that possible with information, whereas it once was totally controlled by the ivory tower and the elites, governments. Now everybody can have information. Everybody can have a voice, right? So the kind of last frontier here is money and payments. So what we need to do is start creating checks and balances so that corporations and governments do not control everything about money and finance. And that is going to lead to a healthier society, one where we have a little more control. Um, this does not lead to anarchy. This does not lead to a society where there is no government or you know there are no companies that doesn't make any sense but it leads to a society where humans and individuals have just like a little more control and a little more say over their own lives just like people in a democracy have a little more say over their own life than a person in a dictatorship and just like people in the information age with the internet are a little more empowered than someone was three four hundred years ago i think it's just quite evolutionary and and makes a lot of sense and i'm not like wedded to the idea of, oh, it's got to be Bitcoin or, or it has to be Lightning Network. 
I just see them at, at the moment as like the most kind of feasible, reasonable ways to get there. Mm-hmm. But if you introduce a new technology that's going to give me a way to do private payments in a permissionless way with anyone else around the world in a relatively quick and easy manner, I'm on board. I'm there, you know. So I'm just trying to, I'm trying to like observe what's out there right now and, you know, see if we can build on that and work on that so that our future generations have the same rights and freedoms we do. And the big mistake I see people making in the human rights space and let's say in the humanitarian space and the think tank space is they're not considering the role that payments and, and money are going to play in this. If you ignore payments and money and you ignore what's happening with Bitcoin or with Libra or with WeChat or, or with all these innovations in the money area, you're going to get hit like a freight train in 10 years when you see what's happened. If you're only looking at like the traditional human rights topics, you're going to miss out. And it's really, it's all been there from the beginning. I mean, if you think about it, what does Mr. Putin do when he, want to shut, when he wants to shut down a human rights organization? He closes their bank account. You know, in, in, in Venezuela, the same thing was, was done. I mean, there were, there were restrictions applied to dissident accounts. People were shut down. It's always been there, but we haven't really seen it in that way. And I think people in the political classes, people in the mainstream media classes, the folks who read The Economist and The Financial Times, they need to start paying attention to the technology of money and payments because it's really going to be the, the deciding factor in whether or not we keep free societies. Which is why decentralization is so important because everything that you have talked about today, every problem, every dictatorship, everything comes down to some kind of centralization of power, some kind of an individual or group of people who can make decisions based on their own personal mm-hmm. desires, needs, wants, goals. The thing about Bitcoin is... You cannot do that. No individual has that control, which is the power behind Bitcoin and really is kind of a, a kind of like a nice contradiction to all the problems you've talked about. Yeah, I mean, decentralization is a beautiful force. It's, it's, a, it's a powerful idea. And it's something that, again, I think leads to a, a better and a fairer society, both from the political point of view with democratic systems and, and the money view for, with regard to what we can start to build um, with Bitcoin. And I think when we talk about defiance and we talk about defying the powers that be and the, the establishment, what I'm most concerned about is not any particular religious dictatorship taking over the world or I'm not, not particularly concerned uh, for various reasons with uh, like an AI taking over the world. I'm most concerned with the model that China has built being exported and kind of taking over the world. Not necessarily run by the Chinese, but run by your own government, where you no longer want to have freedom, where you no longer would even think of questioning your government because it would ruin your conveniences, right, of your day-to-day life. It would ruin your ability to talk with your friends. It would ruin your ability to travel abroad, your ability to send your kids to a private school. So I'm most concerned about this sort of like Social credit system, I guess, is the easy way to say it. Coming to a country near you, coming to your society, and you no longer being willing or able to criticize your government. And the only solution to that is decentralization, is getting away from that top-down model where the government is totally centralizing everything. So to defy that model that I'm afraid of, we need to start thinking about how we can kind of like pry away control over our personal information and our money and our payments from centralized services. And this is why, and I mentioned earlier, but uh, you know, zero knowledge encryption is still sort of very nascent, but uh, we need to support that 
just as much as we do Bitcoin, Lightning, and other sort of private payment ideas. We need to have an ability to have sort of both happening at the same time if we want to properly defy what might be coming next. So previously, you talked to me before about the Belt and Road. This was the export of Chinese technology to other countries that kind of follows up from what you've just said, the export of ideas or technology. Well, remind me what this was about. Sure. Well, the Belt and Road is the largest infrastructure project in history. So the Marshall Plan, which rebuilt Europe after World War II, in real terms today, in real dollars, would be about 130 billion U.S. dollars. The Belt and Road, which is a Chinese government infrastructure project globally, has already given out $400 billion of loans and investment. And the total estimate is that it's going to be about a trillion dollars when all is said and done. And the idea is that the Chinese government gives out very cheap loans or, or invests favorably in infrastructure, public infrastructure projects in the developing world. Everywhere from South Asia to Southeast Asia to Africa to Latin America. It's like the train track I saw the other day being built in Kenya. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so they build, they bring in their own workers. Okay. And again, they, this is all done very favorably. But there's a lot of like debt enslavement that happens. So the Chinese government will come in and say to like a country like Panama, for example, which, which is one of the countries where this has happened. And they'll say, hey, we through our subsidiary companies will install facial recognition software on your streets to give you really smart cities that can reduce crime. And of course, I'm sitting there thinking, oh my God, like they're going to basically you know, steal everybody's privacy and rights. But the municipal government says, oh, cool, this is a way we can reduce crime by having facial recognition at the street level everywhere in our cities, right? So they're like, that sounds great. Let's do a pilot in these two cities here. And they buy this like insanely expensive project from the Chinese government with a really cheap loan and they become indebted. So you've got dozens and dozens of countries around the world who have agreed to buy this technology or accept investment from the Chinese government and have basically become sort of slaves to them. And this is one of the reasons why so few countries around the world are criticizing the Chinese government's imprisonment of millions of Muslims in prison camps because they can't really say much because they're totally like in debt to the Chinese. And this is a brilliant tactical move by the Chinese government. If you look at the UN, there was this unprecedented call for China to end the prison camps and the persecutions of Muslims in Xinjiang, the northwestern province. And if you look at the list of countries that opposed the reform, it's a whole bunch of countries that are signed on to the Belt and Road. So China's basically built like an alternative system to the UN where governments are going to be allied with them. And the scary part is that they're building the telecommunications even in Europe. So putting aside the Belt and Road countries... Is this that Hawaii? are in the developing world. I mean, the United, the United Kingdom is hiring Huawei, yep. right, to build some of its telecommunications networks. Monaco, Italy, Switzerland, Greece. I mean, there are countries in the, you know, in the heart of Europe. I mean, if you look at the Czech Republic, the president of the Czech Republic, all of his personal communications uh, are done by Huawei. So, I mean, you've got, even in the heart of Europe, you've got the Chinese government installing a whole bunch of, like, 5G technology and new telecommunications stuff. And that's where all this new data is going to live. And the Chinese government has this national security law whereby, like, they can just ask for any data that runs on the on Chinese company networks and ask for a copy to come to Beijing. So it's kind of crazy to me when I was in Prague earlier this year and I realized that the, the, the president of that country, his personal communications probably had a copy in Beijing. 
And you start to see this is just a very genius thing the Chinese government's doing, but they've zeroed in on telecommunications as the way that they can they can spy on folks. So this is one of the reasons why if we want to defy the system, we have to invest in encryption. We have to invest in what we call defensive technology. I mean, what are they gonna do with a bunch of encrypted tech? Rather, what are they gonna do with a bunch of encrypted data? I mean, not much, right? I mean, I read today, I think today was the first time or yesterday that more companies in the Fortune 500 were Chinese than American. Yeah, I mean, the Chinese plan is working. And I think you'd be naive to think that in 20, 30 years that uh, America would still be like the lone world power. I mean, it, it's quite, it seems quite clearly that it'll be a bipolar, if not the Chinese world. So we need to think very carefully about, you know, what kind of technology infrastructure we set up in our countries. And just as we're guarding our political rights and protecting free speech and protecting our right to assemble and protecting our right to have NGOs and nonprofits and protecting our right to hold our government accountable and protecting our right to sue our government, we need to at the same time be equally invested in looking at how we can preserve digital freedoms and privacy on the internet and in our payments. These are equally important. If we don't do both at the same time, we will fall victim to massive violations of our civil liberties. So we need to uphold old school civil rights and civil liberties campaigning and we need to invest in activists and human rights causes and we need to be hardcore about that and at the same time we need to be exploring new technology and working with you know a lot of the folks that you interview on your other show to talk about well how can we make you know ownership and control over data and money and payments more robust and how can we more meaningfully protect and get investment in and get excitement around encrypted communications and encrypted payments. It's really the only way to stop the sort of like global surveillance state from from totally manifesting. I think I asked you this question on my other podcast when I interviewed you back in December 18. Are you becoming more or less optimistic about the future of the world in terms of freedom and rights? Because, I don't know, even during this interview, I'm connecting the dots. I'm listening to... You talked to me about dictatorship in China, Mm -hmm. in Russia. We've talked about the expansion of Chinese technologies. We talked about the Belt and Road. I read this morning about China having more companies in the Fortune 500 than America. I also read about Russian planes encroaching in on South Korean airspace Mm -hmm. alongside Chinese jets. Yeah, and you have not much resistance coming from, like, the West, right? I'm just starting to connect these dots. Not even not much resistance, but, like, in t- certain times, collaboration, open collaboration in some, mm-hmm. some cases, right? So there are reasons to be pessimistic, and we need to be guarding our civil liberties and be vigilant. But I think that technology and, you know, the, the bold uh, human spirit give us some optimism. If you look at some of the people that I, I get the pleasure of working with through the Human Rights Foundation. I mean, they are against all odds. You know, they are up against horrible dictatorships and yet they persist. And they persist because they believe in a better world. So they're already where we think we may be if we fuck up, right? So someone who lives in, someone who's escaped North Korea has seen what happens if we fuck up completely, right? They've seen like the actual horrible dystopia that humans can create. They've seen the worst possible outcome, right? Yeah. And they're here to say not only you know, did I escape? Not only did I risk my life and make it happen and escape, but I believe in my ability to bring freedom back to my country, right? 
So I think one of the key things we have to consider is that a mixture of that like inspiration from people who are on the edge mixed with new tools that can help them, you know, give me some optimism. I mean, I won't lie. It's, it's a little weird to say for most people, especially, but if, if like Bitcoin didn't exist, I'd be considerably less optimistic about our ability to challenge the, the techno dystopian dictatorship that, that is certainly being built by many people right now. It, it just gives us a, a kind of a way out of that and it gives us a tool to fight that. And it's, it's pretty exciting. So that's one of those main sources of my optimism is that there's this incredible new tool and social construct that was just freaking airdropped on us by who knows, you know, we don't know who they are, but it does give me some optimism. And not just because of inherently what Bitcoin itself can do, but the fact it's a proven case of defiance. Exactly. You know, you, know, you wrote the manifesto yes. for the podcast. You Satoshi wrote, Nakamoto. Yeah, you wrote a number of different acts of defiance. It is an act of defiance. The creation is an act of defiance. The usage is an act of defiance. But also it just proves that we can challenge the status quo, that a global financial system can be created that is outside of government control. I mean, it's... I mean, in, in some ways, Satoshi Nakamoto releasing the Bitcoin white paper and launching Bitcoin is, is, is a very similar act to Malala refusing to stop her education uh, as a woman in Central Asia. It's very similar to Ai Weiwei refusing to stop using his art to criticize the political system in China is, is very similar to Tim Berners-Lee saying, hey, we should revolutionize the way that we interact with each other, is very similar to Nelson Mandela saying, hey, we should have a different kind of government here that treats everybody equally, is very similar to someone like Gandhi or Rosa Parks who rose up against colonialism or racism and said this isn't the right way to do things, is very similar to Alan Turing, is very similar to Anne Frank, is really similar to Jane Austen, is very similar to Martin Luther who you know, nailed the theses to the, the door of the church. I mean, very similar to Gutenberg, who came up with the printing press. There, there's a lot of similarities between these historical figures who defied the establishment to try and create a better world. And um, I think Satoshi Nakamoto is right in line with that. And we need to take the, the technical and social, political, economic gift that he or she gave to us and, and do what we can with it. All right, so listen... Some people listening to this will be Bitcoiners. They'll be fully on board. They will know who you are. They will support what you're doing. They'll have a deep interest in a number of the topics we've talked about. But there are going to be people who are going to listen to this for the first time who are going to be woken up a little bit to what's going on. I'm not saying these people are idiots and morons and are not aware of what's going on in China, but just maybe not to the extent that you've talked about today. They might not be aware of the Bolton Road. They might not be aware of the lack of real democracy in Russia. What can people do? Like, What are the ways that people can find out more, to understand more, can contribute? How can people mm. get involved? What are the things that you would want people to do? Yeah, how do you get globally woke, Yeah, I guess is the idea. You start with a podcast. Yeah, start by following the podcast. I think uh -huh. you're going to have some great guests on here. Through what I'm doing with the Human Rights Foundation, one of the, one of the more interesting things you can do that obviously sparked Peter's interest is attend one of our Oslo Freedom Forum events. And you get to hear some of these stories firsthand from people all around the world. And you get to talk to them. And you get to have beers with them and have dinner with them and hang out with them, right? And it really starts to change your complexion of, of how you believe the world works and what your assumptions are. And it helps you address like where your bubbles are. I think everybody, hopefully after listening to this podcast, has a couple 
assumptions they've had about the world or things they thought about a certain person that they're now questioning. So you should question a little more and you know, get certainly get involved with, with our work if you want at the Human Rights Foundation and the Oslo Freedom Forum, if you want to meet some of these folks firsthand. But if not, you know, keep listening to Peter's podcast, keep reading, keep looking at independent media, keep investing in independent media. At the end of the day, I, I think that journalism and free speech is, is kind of the thing that'll, that'll keep us alive in, in the future. Are there any wrong ways to react to this? Are there any ways that people can go down the wrong path, wrong reactions, myths or red herrings they could follow? Are there any ways that people react to hearing like this, which is, you know, that yeah, you've had I mean, experience? Like? Look, I, I think that probably a lot of your listeners will listen to this and say, oh, well, you know, he's like too pro-American or like too pro-Western. And I think that's probably misunderstanding me. I'm, I'm quite critical of governments in the West and what apparent, especially my government's foreign policy has done to like destroy parts of the world. What I'm saying is, is not to excuse the behavior of Western democracies, but what I'm trying to point to is that the system is worth preserving in as much as it's better to have a society where people have accountability over their leaders and can question and can push for reform than not. It doesn't mean that that government that has been created by the people will be a good one. It doesn't mean that it's going to be perfect. It won't be. But it will be better than a government that's that's created uh, by one person arbitrarily. And I think that's, that's, a, that's a difficult thing to accept and to understand and something I always struggle with. But at the end of the day, uh, I, I just believe that it's, it's better for there to be checks and balances and, and ways that we can kind of push our governments. And that's going to lead to a better system for all of us. But in, in no means am I trying to make any uh, apologies or excuses for um, the behavior of, of Western governments. And lastly, how do people follow the HRF and how do they follow you? And sure. I think the easiest way is on Twitter for most of your listeners. HRF's HRF. I'm Gladstein, my last name on Twitter, G-L-A-D-S-T-E-I-N. And just a total honor and pleasure to be on here, Peter. Well, thank you. I wouldn't have done this without you, as you know. You know, this uh, relationship we've built since December last year, you've piqued my interest. I've got a lot to learn. There's so much I am unaware of, but I'm ready to dive in. I'm ready to learn as much as I can about these important subjects and hopefully bring them to a new audience. But without you, I wouldn't have done this. So thank you so much. And I hope to bring you around the world over the next couple of years. And we're going we're gonna to meet some amazing people. All right, man. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that first episode of Defiance. For me, Alex was a natural choice as the first guest for the show because of the great work he does for the Human Rights Foundation pushing for freedom around the world. He's become a good friend and also Alex is the reason the show happened. Earlier in the year, he kindly invited me out to Oslo for the Human Rights Freedom Forum. And after the event, I said to Alex, I need to make a new show to talk about some of these topics that I learned about at the Freedom Forum. And so since then, we've been working on this together, including Alex writing the Defiance Manifesto, which is available on the show website. So I hope you enjoyed the show. If you want to support this, you want to help me with what I'm doing here, please leave me a review on iTunes or subscribe to the show. Follow the show on social media and share it out with your friends and family. And if you have any questions about Defiance, then please email me on peter at defiance.news. 